least popular woman and why in Hollywood, promised gossip columnist Hedda Hopper in a feature called My Own Super Superlative Awards in 1941 in Photoplay. She failed to name a least popular man. Her award went to Jean Arthur because she's the least cooperative with the press and she's known less than any girl here. In fact, I don't know any other player of star quality who's ever really got close to Jean. As far as Hollywood's concerned, she might as well be locked up in a glass case. Now, blame it on shyness or what you will, hers is a name that when mentioned causes no reaction whatever. Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I am your host, the titular old movie lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 24 of my series, The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. More specifically, this is Close-Up Jean Arthur. What I am about to tell you is a story of a most unique person's unsteady rise to become the top star of her studio, a studio she loathed, a crown she rejected. It's a story of a contract wielded like a weapon, and of the overwhelming pressure and anxieties that come with being a square peg trying to cram yourself into a round hole. It's part of the story of Jean Arthur, dubbed the most misunderstood girl in Hollywood. Only part of her story, though. I don't get too personal. She would have fucking hated that. Jean Arthur seems to be the most mysterious young lady, answered Pitcher Play to a fan's query about her in their June 1928 issue. None of the companies for which she has worked know anything about her except that she was born in Plattsburgh, New York, and educated in Portland, Maine. That's the trouble with these freelance players. No company is sufficiently interested to obtain their biographies. I don't think Jean is married, Sorry to not be more helpful. It's interesting to blame Jean's then-freelance status. Little would change when she signed with Paramount that year. She'd been in Hollywood for about five years at that point. She was a mysterious young lady, and frankly, she would stay that way. Jean was born as Gladys Green on October 17th, likely in Plattsburgh, though Jean would later claim to be New York born and bred, 1905 and 1908 were often later cited as Jean's birth year. However, she was almost certainly born on October 17, 1900. 1901 at a real pinch, but certainly no later. Whether through her steadfast commitment to privacy, or her self-consciousness, or maybe even professional strategy, or some combination of all those reasons, 
Jean never admitted her real age, and indeed went to lengths to obfuscate the finer details of the truth. Not only that, but she would get annoyed when questioned on the subject. As for her early years, details are relatively scant, though biographer John Aller goes into a lot more depth in his book Jean Arthur, The Actress Nobody Knew. It's a resource that I use extensively in this episode, and I recommend you go check it out. She had three older brothers. Her father Hubert was a photographer and also frequently absent from the family's lives, likely due to issues with alcoholism. Young Gladys was devoted to him, but that couldn't have been a stable situation for a young child's emotional well-being. She was close to her mother Johanna, but theirs was a complicated relationship. Hannah, as her mother was known, was quite critical and stern, and found Gladys's tomboyishness to be embarrassing. She was, let's be honest, probably trying to hold on to respectability with all she could, given that the family moved frequently and struggled financially, that her husband was unreliable at best, and she was trying to raise four children. The result, however, was, as one relative described it, an environment that must have been absolutely stifling. Gladys was a shy child who found it difficult to make friends. In some ways, it seems curious that she ended up as a performer at all, but similarly to Clara Bow's youth, it was in the flickering glow of the movie house that a different kind of life made itself known. Mary Pickford became her first on-screen idol, a hero with similarly humble roots to her own. In 1915, Gladys's father got a job in New York City, and after a period of estrangement, he moved his wife and only daughter into the bustling metropolis. Because of how frequently they moved, including times when Gladys was sent to live with her grandparents, as well as periods when she was required to work instead of go to school, Gladys was self-conscious about her education. She was clever and got good grades, but she didn't finish high school. Some cryptic change in family circumstances led to her dropping out and taking up work as a stenographer. Likely through connections from her photographer father, when he was around, Gladys began working as an artist's model in her late teens. She worked for a number of prominent artists and photographers, including Alfred Cheney Johnston. Around 1920, she met, in a passing acquaintance type of way, another young model, Norma Shearer. She and Norma Shearer posed for the same artist, wrote Picture Play in their February 1929 edition. Jean thought Norma was the most beautiful girl in the world, and she still does. She talks about how successful Norma is, and what a wonderful person she is. It was Norma Shearer who urged Jean to take her first screen test. Fox was looking for a promising girl to play a leading role, and quite a number of beautiful girls in New York took tests for the place. But it was shy little Jean, pushed into the Fox offices by Norma Shearer, who won the coveted honor. Almost certainly this is an embellishment to associate the much more famous Norma Shearer with the still up-and-coming in 1929 Jean. They did both work as artists' models at the same time. They knew each other. 
But by the time Gladys Green got a screen test in New York in the summer of 1923, Norma had already been in Hollywood for several months. John Aller also reports that Jean would tell friends stories of her father driving her and Norma as teenagers all the way to California, a fabrication to support her falsified age and to strengthen this tenuous link to Norma. It not only strengthens the tenuous link, it centers Jean and her oft-absent father as integral figures in Norma's origin story. In mid-1923, Jean, as Gladys, did get a Fox screen test after being suggested by a group of New York artists, and did well enough to get a one-year contract. She and her mother, not Father Hubert, though he would eventually come out west too, headed off to Hollywood. Fox wasted no time in pushing their new and entirely untested acquisition. First, a stage name. Gladys Green was out, Jean Arthur was in. Just a little aside, because I'm interested in these sorts of things. To 2024 ears, I don't think either Jean or Gladys sounds like a particularly exciting name. But to put it into context, Gladys had been a consistently commonplace name in the United States for decades. Not a top 10 baby name, but still top 30. Jean, however, was trendy. It only became a top 100 name in 1906 in the United States, and had risen to become the 19th most popular baby girl's name in 1923. Fox wanted to promote Jean as one of these new trendy flappers, so a new trendy name came with the territory. Not that she had no choice in the matter, and reportedly liked the name Jean after Joan of Arc, which is a stretch, and Arthur after King Arthur, which, okay. With her new name and the plan to promote her as an exciting flapper, Fox arranged some risque photo shoots and even got Jean on the cover of Movie Weekly magazine. They also put her in her first feature film, Cameo Kirby, in support of John Gilbert and Gertrude Olmsted. It was directed by John Ford and was about a riverboat captain. Though Jean appeared in print advertisements for the picture, the Exhibitor's Herald said, There is no great task for either Gertrude Olmsted or Jean Arthur in support of John Gilbert, but they perform credibly. So no, Cameo Kirby didn't make an overnight star out of Jean Arthur. But hopes were high for the Temple of Venus. In presenting the Temple of Venus, William Fox offers what he considers to be one of the most unique screen events in history, wrote the Exhibitor's Herald. The picture is called a veritable screen follies, with its cast of beautiful girls in bathing costumes, its underwater photography, and its general air of spectacular elaboration. Jean was cast in one of the lead roles, and filming commenced on location on an island off the coast of Santa Barbara. Just three days later, Jean hitched a ride on a fishing boat back to the mainland. She'd been fired from the production because, well, she wasn't any good. It's hardly her fault. She had essentially no experience. And also, for all the hype, the Temple of Venus was a flop, even with Jean's replacement, Wampus Baby Star of 1922, Mary Philbin. For the first, but not the last time, Jean wanted to quit the movie business. She was still under contract, however, 
and for the next year, Fox stuck her in comedy shorts. To say that these shorts were a downgrade from working with John Gilbert or in a unique screen event like the Temple of Venus would be a major understatement. Fox Studios, which would later really pride itself on its high-end literary adaptations, scraped the bottom of the barrel when it came to one and two reelers. Case in point, Monk's Alamode, which paired Jean opposite two chimpanzees, one of whom was playing a racist caricature of a Chinese person. At the wrap of her contract at Fox, Jean found herself as a free agent with still very little to show for her time on the West Coast. She didn't pack up and leave Hollywood behind, however, and instead kind of stumbled into working for Action Pictures, the Poverty Rose studio specialized in ultra-low-budget B-Westerns, usually shot on location in the desert. This would become, for a while, Jean's niche. She did like 20 westerns over the next couple of years, 12 with action pictures, and the rest with similarly low-ball operations, usually opposite cowboys like Buffalo Bill Jr., Wally Wales, and Buddy Roosevelt, and always just playing the damsel in distress or otherwise decorative leading lady. What reviews she got were fine. Jean Arthur is pleasing as the girl, that sort of thing. She also did a bunch of not-great comedies. In the standard casting directory of February 1925, Jean is listed as a freelance ingenue lead. Her headshot, a little risque as she's wearing a hat and little else, doesn't really stand out in the sea of other young freelancing ladies. More notable on her page is a crotch-first picture of Olive Clark, the girl with the rubber body. Freelancing was hard, y'all, and it rarely got your face in the best films played at the most high-end theaters. The Broadway theaters, and by this they meant big market New York movie theaters owned by major studios, not independents. The Broadway theaters are happy in the belief that they, in the natural course of events, capture all the available talent and display it with remarkable expediency to an admiring and voracious public explained picture play in their November 1927 issue. But every once in a while a player comes into prominence who has long had prestige in that vast region known as the Styx. Take, for example, Jean Arthur, who for many moons supported hokum stars in the highways and byways of comedy. Westerns, too, were her lot. But along came Jess Smith, a young producer with a discerning eye, who felt that she would more than fit the bill in The Poor Nut. 1927's The Poor Nut was a comedy starring Jack Mulhall, and the most important role of Jean's career thus far. Not because it was a breakout role or anything, but due to producer Jess Smith going to bat for her, it at least allowed eyes at First National to notice her for the very first time though it didn't lead to a long-term contract. Luckily, Jess wasn't the only one to go to bat for Jean. In early 1928, David O. Selznick was a rising studio executive who had just joined Paramount from MGM. He would turn 26 that year, and though he wasn't yet the star maker he would quickly become, the fact that he was quite head over heels in love with Jean probably helped her to land a contract with Paramount and a role in the studio's first sound picture. Not a talkie, but 
synchronized sound effects, warming up. It was a hit, really purely because of the novelty, but it was still a hit, and it did wonders for her profile. It's hard to say how Jean really felt about David, or, you know, how she felt about much of anything for that matter, but certainly outwardly she seemed to run very hot and cold with him. After he pursued her quite intensely, and apparently quite literally, as there's a story about him chasing her around a table, she did have a relationship with him, but didn't appear to be in any particular hurry for a romantic commitment to David. And even if she did really like him, despite his infatuation, he was also openly seeing Irene Mayer at the same time. Irene was the daughter of MGM chief Louis B. Mayer, David's former and future boss. The two women were quite different prospects. Jean was quirky, mysterious, ambitious, hard to get, and high-strung. Irene was younger, a calm, cautious person, brought up with a certain refinement to be a perfect hostess and a Hollywood society wife. So for David, Jean was basically a manic pixie dream girl, and Irene was the logical, strategic choice for a wife. But that doesn't mean that the decision was easy. Perhaps Jean was trying to make the decision for him when, later in 1928, she impulsively married a photographer, Julian Anker, for a day. Okay, here's what Jean had to say about this one-day marriage when she was interviewed in 1972. Julian looked a lot like Abraham Lincoln, and that's probably why I fell in love with him. One day we were out driving and he suddenly said, Hey, why don't we get married? So we lied about our ages and got married in a sheriff's office. You should have heard our family's reactions, all sorts of screaming and shouting and carrying on about suicide. Well, neither Julian nor I had enough income to make it possible for us to live together, so our marriage lasted one day. I really respect the idea of falling in love with someone because they look like Abraham Lincoln. I do have to point out the frankly hilarious fabrication in her story, so we lied about our ages. Baby girl, you were 28 years old. But hey, we must respect her commitment to the bit. The idea that the marriage must be annulled because they were just so young and poor there was no money to stay married is not what was reported at the time. Shrouded in mystery is the marriage and annulment which occurred a few days after Christmas of Jean Arthur and Julian Anker, wrote Photoplay. The papers carried the story that their honeymoon was cut short by Jean's discovery of a clause in her Paramount contract that prohibited her marrying. She immediately packed up her trousseau and went back to the studio. According to Anker, efforts on his part to persuade her to recognize her marriage contract failed. He received an annulment. Was this another case of excess baggage? I wonder. But when Jean was questioned, she fell into a violent case of weeping, left the studio before I got there, with instructions to one of the office boys to hand me the following note. My career has nothing to do with the annulment. It was an extremely unhappy event which I wished to forget as quickly as possible. Many years later, she said there was, quote, nothing tragic about the marriage, so the dramatics of violently weeping and getting office boys to pass notes along just so you don't have to talk to some interviewer from Photoplay is both over-the-top and very funny. Professionally, as 1929 dawned, Jean was on an upswing at Paramount and their new sound endeavors, 
so her inclusion on the Wampus Baby Stars list, even though she had been around in Hollywood for years now and was nearing 30, though nobody knew that, wasn't met with much surprise. She'd had a good year in 1928, and the Canary murder case was ready to be released in February. Great timing for any baby star. It was an interesting feature, a murder mystery initially filmed as a silent, then dubbed over in a bit of a panic as a talkie. It's been credited with launching William Powell to stardom and sending Louise Brooks's stardom crashing down. She'd refused to do her dubs. It was a whole thing. Despite the behind-the-scenes issues and the mixed reviews of the final product, the Canary murder case was a hit, and should have been a feather, pardon me, in Jean's cap as the fourth-billed role, but she failed to make much of an impact on screen. Jean's own assessment of her work during this time period is that she just wasn't very good. A few years later, she told Motion Picture Magazine that she was a poor actress who, though anxious to improve, was horribly meek. And due to a resemblance in looks and type to fellow Paramount player and Wampus Baby Star of 1926, Mary Bryan, she was competing for roles that weren't very good in the first place. I got the ultra-insipid parts, she told Motion Picture. Not to contradict Jean entirely, but some of her work during 1929 seems a far cry from Mary Bryan's sloppy seconds. Not the terribly racist The Mysterious Fu Manchu, where Jean plays a girl hypnotized by Werner Oland in Yellowface, but take, for example, The Saturday Night Kid with Baby Star of 1924, Clara Bow. Screenland wrote, Clara Bow, as a self-sacrificing martyr who takes it on the chin when her sister steals her sweetheart, is a waste of her time and ours. Jean Arthur runs away with the nasty little sister prize for the new year, and also with Clara's picture. Jean is an acting sensation, but it's hard on Clara, and it's not her fault. Bring back, oh, bring back our red-hot bow. So not a great film, but Jean was good. Into 1930, on the heels of that performance, Jean's publicity took a marked upswing. It took Jean Arthur six years to conquer an inferiority complex and Hollywood, announced Photoplay. And yet, Paramount clearly didn't know what to do with her, and didn't properly capitalize on the spark that she showed in films like The Saturday Night Kid. Instead, they continued to treat her like a second-rate Mary Bryan, who, if you listen to my 1926 episode, Prisoners of Their Reputations, you'll know Paramount wasn't treating particularly well either. I'd say a major part of the problem was being at Paramount at that specific time. The studio was on shaky ground financially for the first couple of years of the 1930s, declaring bankruptcy in 1933. One of the catalysts for the economic downturn of the company was the Great Depression, but they also suffered major losses during the transition to sound. Converting their chain of theaters to the new technology was extremely expensive. Sound may have also played a part in the inconsistent roles that Jean was getting, specifically. If you force my hand, I would describe Jean's voice as croaky, but kind of squeaky, in a cute way. I find it charming, but reactions to her voice vary wildly. John Aller, author of Jean Arthur, the actress nobody knew, wrote of her voice, Impossible to appreciate without it being heard, 
It was at once squeaky and husky, and has been described as like corduroy, like butter being churned, grated like fresh peppermint, or, in Capra's words, low, husky, at times it broke pleasingly into the higher octaves like a thousand tinkling bells. Nasal but nice, ran the headline in Picture Place December 1930 issue, showing that not everyone was so pleased. They had to admit that, off-screen, her voice does not seem nasal. She insists that the whiny tones were merely part of her characterization in The Saturday Night Kid, but as her voice recorded nasally in several other pictures, I'm going to put her down as nasal but nice, just to keep that title. In a time when what made a great voice for film was still very much being ironed out, being accused of being nasal while being at a shaky studio and not getting the best parts was a perfect storm for bad news. In mid-1931, Paramount cleaned house as a cost-cutting measure releasing several featured players, including Mary Bryan, Faye Ray, and of course, Jean, from their contracts. The fan magazines couldn't exactly say in print that Paramount was on the brink of total collapse, so they mostly blamed all three for being too nice. The movie Mirror wrote in a piece called Does It Pay to Be Good? about Jean, Virtuous she looked and virtuous she would be. The only time she ever really got the limelight was when she played Clara Bow's mean, selfish sister in The Saturday Night Kid. She wasn't a good girl then, and the critics said she stole the picture. But she didn't learn anything from that. She didn't learn that the public is bored with sweet girls. She had been married once to Julian Anker, and her marriage had been annulled. She doesn't want to talk about it too much to interviewers. It might be harmful publicity. Instead, her prepared publicity reads, Jean, Arthur says, I want a farm with a big rambling old house. I want a cow and at least one of every other domestic animal. She's that sort of person. It's just too bad that the public doesn't like that sort of person. I like that sort of person. That sounds like an awesome dream. But, okay, sure, it doesn't sound like something that a 1930s bad girl might say. So, if we did our pulse check with the Wampus in late 1931, the verdict about Jean Arthur would be succinct. No, she wasn't a star. The Wampus got this one wrong. Except, we simply can't count Jean out just yet. For a few months before being released by Paramount, Jean had been seeing a singer-slash-wannabe-actor-slash-builder named Frank Ross. He was in his mid-twenties, a couple years younger than Jean, and lived in her neighborhood when they met, though he recently returned home to New York City. When Jean was suddenly unemployed, it seemed as good a time as any to go eastward where her new boyfriend was. She'd recently done a play in Pasadena, California, and figured she could try her hand at a stage career. To say that Jean's foray into the theater was an instant success would be inaccurate, but it went a hell of a lot better than her eight years in Hollywood had done. She did a number of plays, including a well-received stint on Broadway in The Man Who Reclaimed His Head, of which Pitcher Play wrote in their December 1932 issue, The Man Who Reclaimed His Head, a play written around a gruesome character, 
that would have been a natural for the late Lon Chaney. All that producers gleaned from this one is that Jean Arthur, formerly of Paramount, is an ingratiating and skilled young actress. Don't be surprised if she comes back to pictures with a blare of trumpets. She thinks now that she would rather stay on the stage until she gets more experience, but the public's disinterest in plays may cure her of that ambitious idea. Jean, who married Frank Ross in 1932, but didn't really tell anyone about it for a few months, visited her parents in California later that year for Christmas. She filmed The Past of Mary Holmes with RKO while she was there, which, along with Get That Venus, which she filmed in New Jersey, were the only screen work she'd done since 1931. It was not a big return to the screen, as Jean's focus remained firmly on the New York theater scene. The plays that she was in weren't generally anything to write home about, and she probably got to do so many of them because the runs were so short, but this had the surprise advantage of giving her rapid-fire experience in a variety of roles, and got her seen doing different things in front of New York critics. Twice this season I have seen her in stage dramas of no importance, wrote one reviewer, and each time she has shown herself as an interesting and attractive actress. Her most important stage production was 1933's The Curtain Rises, she had the central role in the comedy, which got excellent reviews and ran for over 60 performances, which was quite impressive for any of Jean's shows. According to biographer John Aller, however, Jean's unusual behavior may have led directly to the show's closure in December 1933. She refused to pose with the cast for publicity pictures, arguing that if any producers saw her in her frumpy first-act costume, it would jeopardize her chance for future parts, he wrote. She also complained of fatigue and had a theater hand spread a mat on the floor after each scene so that she might lie down and rest. Then, on a freezing December day, she insisted on keeping the backstage door open during the matinee performance, despite objections from the audience and the cast. She even refused to appear for the second act until the management promised that the door would remain open. After that evening's performance, the play unexpectedly folded, probably because the management could not risk lawsuits from patrons who might claim to have caught pneumonia as a result of the theater's negligence. It would not be the last show Jean closed. Regardless of all that, as I mentioned, the reviews were good. Jean was riding high on the praise and seemingly not taking much in the way of personal responsibility, when she again headed to California for a holiday visit in December 1933. Just as she had done the previous year, Jean figured it wouldn't hurt to do a quick movie while she was in the area. Whirlpool was a pre-code drama starring Jack Holt by Columbia. In 1933-1934, Columbia was in a transitionary period. With Poverty Row roots to a much more respectable operation, though still with a seedy side, Whirlpool was hardly the sort of offering the studio would soon prove itself capable of. Still, Jean acquitted herself well in the role as the daughter of a shady carnival promoter-turned-inmate-turned-nightclub-owner with ties to the mob. Jack Holt, just 13 years her senior, played the father. Baby star of 1922, Lila Lee, who was, depending on the source, between one and four years younger than Jean, played her mother. Columbia was impressed and offered Jean a five-year contract. At first, she resisted, citing a desire to return to Broadway and her New York-based husband, but after no small amount of hemming and hawing, 
Jean signed on the dotted line on February 14, 1934. Nearly 11 years after first arriving in Hollywood, this contract would be Jean's ticket to stardom. It would also go on to serve as a millstone around her neck. But hey, we're still at the fun part. Jean's next two films with Columbia were run-of-the-mill dramas, but in late 1934, the studio scored big with the screwball comedy It Happened One Night, starring Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, directed by Frank Capra. This wasn't the first-ever screwball, but the genre, characterized by fast-paced, witty dialogue, playing with gender dynamics, female characters at the forefronts, was fast-emerging in the early 1930s. At Columbia, it happened one night, which would go on to sweep the Academy Awards and become a classic, marked a shift in the types of comedy films they were producing, and thus, it marked a shift in the types of roles suddenly available to Jean. While there is likely some truth to the assessment that earlier in her career, Jean lacked confidence and experience, and this resulted in her not very good performances, as evidenced by the good reviews that she did get, she brought something worthwhile to the table even then. I think the key to her success, the reason all the puzzle pieces fit together when they did, is that Jean Arthur was made for screwball comedies. It's not all she did, and she did other genres extremely well, but screwball success opened the door. Her first foray into the genre was The Whole Town's Talking in 1935 opposite Edward G. Robinson, who himself was trying to show off his range. In the picture, he gets to play a dual role as a gangster, his bread and butter, and as a milk-toast look-alike in over his head. She gets to play a sassy newspaper reporter with a heart of gold, a classic trope and one that Jean pioneered. She did several more dramas that year and then capped off 1935 with If You Could Only Cook, another decidedly screwball comedy. She was not yet a major star, but she was leaps and bounds ahead of where she had been when she quit Hollywood a few years earlier. That it took over a decade to get this far was not ignored by the fan magazines, but because of Jean's commitment to obfuscating her age, she was, by then, in her mid-thirties, the stories usually have her starting her journey to stardom as a teenager. It seems Jean was catapulted into this movie life when she was just sixteen, wrote Screenland, for example. In those days, she had the gosh-darndest inferiority complex. An unfortunate consequence to this fudging of the truth is that her journey is all the more remarkable, in my opinion, given her real age. At 35, some of her counterparts were already considered old news and seeing their careers slow down, but not Jean. In fact, 1936 was her biggest triumph thus far. Carol Lombard was the first choice to play Babe Bennett in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, but dropped out of the movie at the last minute to do My Man Godfrey. When director Frank Capra saw some footage of Jean, debates rage as to what film he saw her in, he decided that she would make an ideal replacement. Columbia's controlling, unpleasant head, Harry Cohn, was less enthusiastic. I thought she'd be ideal opposite Cooper and Mr. Deeds, said Frank, but Cohn didn't agree. She was under contract to Columbia, but Cohn said that she had a face half angel, half horse. He even called a Paramount executive to have him tell me how disappointed they were with Jean. 
Harry Cohn looked like someone who smelled like old milk and spunk, so the absolute nerve of him saying such thing about Jean. Anyway, Frank stuck to his guns, knowing that he could have her filmed in the most flattering way, her left side. And of course, believing in her talent, even if she hadn't always gelled well with others. She was wonderful, on screen, that is, he said. On the set, she was nervous, unsure, and sometimes would vomit after a scene. Vomit or no vomit, Jean sparkles in the film. Mr. Deeds Goes to Town was not only her breakout role, it was the first, but not the last, true classic she appeared in. A box office hit, the film also garnered awards recognition and excellent reviews. Jean was, without a shadow of a doubt, a star. But the fan magazines were still scratching their heads, trying to figure out what kind of star she was, namely because she was being as cagey as ever. As for press interviews, whales have gone up lustily from those who wrest their livelihood from the ribbon and keyboard, wrote Movie Mirror in their September 1936 issue, with practically every editor in the business clamoring for stories on the girl who was going to town with Mr. Deeds, it was almost impossible to contact her. She was at Yosemite on a rest, or she was resting at home studying her next script. Fashion pages were noticeably bare of pictures of the Arthur en negligee, or in sports clothes. Once, somebody swore he saw her at the Trocadero, but nobody believed it. If it had been anyone else, Hollywood would have sworn it was an act. The piece goes on to suggest that Jean wasn't necessarily glamorously mysterious like Greta Garbo, for example, but instead that she was just doing her own thing. Somehow, doing one's own thing was weirder than putting on a show of being aloof. Jean claimed in that movie mirror piece that she just didn't have anything interesting to say to interviewers, and so she didn't want to waste their time. But on the other hand, there are reports of her doing things like cancelling on an interviewer who had traveled all the way out to the desert where she was on location after he had already arrived on set. If that's not wasting someone's time, I don't know what is. Other stories recount her arriving to watch a tennis match, then upon seeing the lineup of photographers there to capture all the celebrity attendees, simply turning on her heels and leaving. These incidents scream extreme anxiety to me, but the fan magazines weren't quite so understanding. Though at least at this point, they leaned more into, isn't she unusual, rather than, isn't she unreasonable? In the wake of her success in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Jean appeared in a string of films in 1936. For her home studio, Columbia, she did Adventure in Manhattan with Joel McCrea and More Than a Secretary with George Brent. Then, on loan to RKO, she did The Ex-Mrs. Bradford with William Powell, and on loan to Paramount, she was paired again with Gary Cooper in Cecil B. DeMille's The Plainsman. The divide in quality and audience response is pretty stark, in that her loan notes did well and she was proud of them, but her two Columbia pictures were middling. Columbia made money every time they loaned her out, so they were quite happy with what was going on, but Jean was rightfully annoyed at the situation. Her first film of 1937, another loan out, this time to United Artists, was History is Made at Night with Charles Boyer. It was a critical triumph. Perhaps this emboldened Jean, or maybe she was just fed up, because without getting permission from Columbia, she signed with Paramount to do Easy Living. She also declared that she had no intention of returning to her home lot. 
Now, her contract stipulated that she could do two non-Columbia pictures a year without any problems, though of course the studio could loan her out for more if they chose to. So even though Harry Cohn was pissed, there actually wasn't much he could do about easy living. And thank goodness, because it's a delight. But although he couldn't put a stop to that one specific film, Harry could put his foot down over Jean quitting. She still had three years on her contract, and he intended to hold her to it. Jean attempted a countersuit, as Columbia had promised her quality roles that it was clear they weren't providing. She lost, and the judgment even included a stipulation that Jean couldn't do any theater or radio work for a year. Now, not only was she stuck at Columbia, she had no other outlet for her work, and she had angered the boss. Harry was a real petty piece of shit, and he ordered Jean to go for her next loan out, this time to Warner Brothers, without giving her any details about the project. No script, didn't tell her the director, no casting info. And when she didn't show up, because why would she, Jean was suspended. Studio suspensions were a nasty punishment. Not only would you not get your salary and not be able to work, the length of your suspension would be tacked on to the end of your contract with no limits. So suddenly a performer could be tied to a studio which had full control over when and how they could work for way longer, years in some cases, than they had originally agreed. And the studios used these suspensions strategically, offering up terrible scripts, or in this case, with Gene, no practical information at all, to force the hand of the star. Eat your humble pie or eat dirt, basically. According to John Aller, Jean was so mad at Harry Cohn, she hatched a hair-brained plan to kill the guy. She didn't go through with it, of course, but trust me when I say that tensions were sky high. Frank Capra can be credited with putting a bandage on the wounds between Jean and Columbia when he insisted that he needed her for You Can't Take It With You in 1938. She signed a new contract with the studio, one that stipulated she only needed to do three films a year, two with Columbia and one loan out. For Jean, who had been overwhelmed with the pace of filming back-to-back films, this was a big win. You Can't Take It With You with James Stewart was another triumph for Jean and Columbia. The film won Best Picture and Best Director at the next year's Academy Awards. Despite the triumph and the wins that came with her new contract, which included being able to opt out of publicity, or perhaps because of those wins, Jean's reputation had never been worse within Hollywood, though the public still loved her. She had always been painted as a bit odd, a bit less than accommodating, but the tone during and after her suspension shifted. Screenland compared striking stars to Marie Antoinette, photoplay called Jean snooty and unsmiling on the set of You Can't Take It With You. To be shy is one thing, to be unkind is another. Right around this time, Jean's name started to be tossed around in the shortlist for Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. It didn't pan out that way, obviously. Until about a week before Miss Lee, she pronounces her name as though it was spelled L-E-E, was signed for Scarlet, wrote Photoplay, it looked definite that Jean Arthur would get the part. There is a girl with temperament all over the place, but with a temperament so destructively used that it has practically eaten up her career in the process. 
Frankly, she would have made for a wildly different Scarlet than Vivian Lee, to the point that such casting seems impossible. David O. Selznick, producer for the film, may have been keeping her in the running due to their relationship a decade previously. Jean wanted the role, though, and screen-tested for it, and was announced as a top-four candidate in everything. Legend has it that when the role went to Vivian, Jean burned her copy of the screen-test script. It was a blow to Jean's self-esteem and her confidence, and her next production, Only Angels Have Wings, didn't help. Don't get me wrong, the Howard Hawks romantic aviation drama, also starring Cary Grant, was the sort of quality picture that Jean wanted to do, but she didn't mesh well with Howard on set. He kept wanting her to be sexier in a cool sort of way, and she just wasn't comfortable with that. Someone who was always pretty good at being sexy in a cool way was the film's second female lead, 20-year-old Rita Hayworth. Still relatively unknown, Rita was not far off, really, from replacing Jean as Columbia's most important star. The rumor mill loves the idea of women feuding on the set, and this was no exception. But there does appear to be some truth to the idea that both Jean and Rita, each being exceptionally shy, failed to bond during filming. And some truth to the idea that Jean was jealous of Rita. Not necessarily as a person, but as a representation of all the things she wasn't or didn't see herself as. Jean couldn't have known all the very real struggles that Rita was experiencing. All she would have seen was a beautiful, much younger lady quickly gaining success, bringing the sex appeal to what was supposed to be Jean's film. Luckily for Jean, her next film would have no such competition. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where she was paired again with James Stewart, is not just another bona fide classic, it was the second highest grossing film of 1939 after Gone with the Wind, and the third highest grossing film of the entire decade. The film was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Curiously, Jean's performance was once again left out. Awards attention or not, Jean was, after a string of hits, an extremely bankable star. Audiences loved her, even if they continued to know very little about her. This doesn't seem to have improved Jean's perception of herself. Too Many Husbands, 1940, saw Jean's insecurity rear its ugly head, as she reportedly couldn't accept that she was attractive enough for her two male leads, Fred McMurray and Melvin Douglas, to be fighting over. She looks as lovely as ever in the film, by the way. In Arizona, a western released that same year, Jean was worried about how she'd look opposite the almost ridiculously handsome William Holden, 18 years her junior. Rumor has it that Jean Arthur wasn't too pleased with the selection of William Holden to play opposite her in Arizona, wrote Modern Screen's June 1940 issue. Jean complained that he might pass as her sweetheart in the first half of the picture, but if she ran true to form... She's usually a nervously exhausted woman after the first few weeks of shooting and looks ten years older than she really is. He would look like her son in the last half. The director pooh-poohed her ideas, 
but those in the know contend that William has a tough assignment ahead of him. Of course, that was written under the lie that Jean was born around 1908, not 1900. She didn't look ten years older than she really was. She was nearly ten years older than she claimed. And of course, Bill Holden does look a lot younger than her. He was only 22. He was practically an embryo. Neither film was very good. And though Jean's clearest successes had been the likes of her Frank Capra collaborations, she wasn't particularly satisfied with her roles in them. She referred to the parts as stooges in an interview with Movie Mirror and insisted that she wanted to play a real role. To help her achieve this, real roles and better films, Jean's husband Frank started a production company, which is just as well as Columbia and Harry Cohn were up to their old tricks again, offering her up shit on a platter. After she turned down four terrible scripts, they put her on suspension again. Stars in the studio's bad books are even more open to criticisms from the fan magazines and gossip columns, so references to Jean's bad temper and her worries over her age, there does appear to be a grain of truth there, grew steadily. What was it someone told us about Jean? Coyly asked the Cal York gossip column for May 1941. Oh yes, she felt she wasn't so young as she might be, and that the fact has become an obsession with her. Shucks, Jeannie with the bright red temper has a long way to travel before she reaches middle years. Jean Arthur has long held an unchallenged reputation for disliking most everything. Miss Arthur is an all-American against on practically all subjects, including newspaper men, photographers, admirers, crowds, football games, nightclubs, movie premieres, restaurants, and so on ad infinium, explained Modern Screen. Again, none of this really hurt her popularity with audiences. Her one film in 1941, The Devil and Miss Jones, produced by her husband for RKO, was a success. And moreover, it's a great comedy. She followed this up in 1942, again her only film that year, with The Talk of the Town with Ronald Coleman and Cary Grant. It was her first film back at Columbia after her latest suspension, and another critical and commercial success. Such was the push and pull of her dealings with her home studio. Harry Cohn would dangle prize projects in front of Jean to get her back to work, and then immediately insult her by offering up whatever schlock suited him to keep her in her place. He also underpaid her. Despite getting top billing with Cary Grant, she earned half of what the second male lead Ronald Coleman received. Fed up with the power being so firmly in horrible Harry's hands, Jean pulled strings at arranging her next project for Columbia, the more the merrier. She was on suspension, yet again, when she contacted the screenwriter Garson Kanan. He offered to write the script for $25,000, which he then presented to Harry Cohn free of charge. Though he was hesitant to play ball with Jean, Harry had to admit that the script was gold. The film, which co-starred Charles Coburn and Joel McCrea, who Jean got the role, was directed by her Talk of the Town director, George Stevens, one of Jean's favorites. It landed Jean her only Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. But if you, or Jean for that matter, thought that this would usher in a new era of freedom or control at Columbia, you'd be sadly mistaken. She had to be coaxed into appearing in 1944's The Impatient Years, 
agreeing because she didn't want to be suspended again. She'd already rejected another project because it included a stomach-turning scene in a morgue. Her contract was set to expire, finally, nine years after she first signed, three years beyond when her amended 1938 contract was supposed to end. Jean simply couldn't afford to turn it down. After a years-long hot streak of notable films, her time at Columbia ended underwhelmingly, but at least it ended. Rumor has it that she ran through the streets of the studio on her last day of filming, shouting, I'm free! I'm free! And she was. Jean retired and returned to the stage, though several times extreme stage fright got in the way of her actual performances. For example, she was supposed to play the lead in Born Yesterday, only to drop out at the last minute. She was replaced by Judy Holliday, who went on to do the film version and take home an Oscar. Jean did do two more films, A Foreign Affair in 1948 and the critically acclaimed epic Technicolor Western Shane, released in 1953, as well as some television, including a short-lived show of her own, The Jean Arthur Show, in the 60s. Beginning during her decades in Hollywood, Jean's attentions and passions increasingly turned to the welfare of animals. She was quoted as saying she trusted animals more than people, and given how often she clashed with people, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. The remainder of her life was complicated, fascinating, at times truly odd. Jean's story doesn't end here, even though my telling of it does. Here, with her freedom. Jean Arthur was difficult and unpredictable. She was an eccentric and fiercely original person whose ambition to act, not to be a star necessarily, but to be an actor, was at times at odds with her own mental health, her insecurities and anxieties, her willingness or ability to behave socially the way that was expected of her, and her own tolerance for both the spotlight and the draconian control of her studio. I guess I became an actress because I didn't want to be myself, she told an interviewer in 1972. But ultimately, she could be no one but herself. No one could ever downplay or deny her track record of significant films for which she has few rivals. For all her fragilities, fabrications, and faults, Jean Arthur was a legend. Thank you for listening to Close Up, Jean Arthur. If you've been enjoying the show, please leave a review and a rating. Be sure to share on your social media and tell all your real-life friends, too. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok as The Old Movie Lady, and you can write me directly at theoldmovielady at gmail.com. I've been your host, Marg, The Old Movie Lady, An Unholy Mess of a Girl. <laughs>